Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. Last episode, we discussed the life of the usurper king, Gundervold, along with a little bit about why he was now in Gaul, and who might benefit from his rebellion, i.e. the Romans. This episode, though, we're going to talk about the response that his appearance caused. Who looked like they were joining the side of the new claimant? What was the response from the kings? We'll see how it all goes in episode 38, Infighting is the Best Kind of Fighting. When we left off last episode, things had been looking initially promising for Gundervold, until our old friend Guntramboso intervened and unexpectedly imprisoned Bishop Theodore of Marseille. Theodore had been the man to first meet and assist the wannabe king, and the first in an important pattern for us. Theodore was backed by the court of Childebert II. Mamalus, the great general who Gundervold also met with, also had ties to the Austrasian court of Childebert. And when pushed by Guntramboso, Theodore had claimed he had orders from the court of Childebert to assist Gundervold. Theodore, along with another accused conspirator, Bishop Epiphanius, and yes, that's a real name, was dragged before King Guntram. They were questioned by the king, and eventually found not guilty on the accusations of conspiracy. But the king did not allow them to leave. Instead, he ordered that both bishops be kept in custody. A curious thing to do with someone who is not guilty. But hey, he's king. Who's going to complain when he locks up some potential traitors? This is a good question, but it begs another question. Who had the authority to determine who was a traitor? The king might seem like a logical answer, but unfortunately it was not entirely so. Remember, the idea of the Frankish realm being separate kingdoms was still forming in this period, and had yet to coalesce into a recognisable division of authority between the kings. Especially since Marseille was supposed to be jointly ruled by both King Guntram and Childebert II, could Guntram really decide what was illegal in the city on his own? This is probably why Guntram acted as he did. He didn't want to make too aggressive a move. Finding Theodore guilty would no doubt have provoked a response from both Childebert and the church. Announcing he wasn't guilty helped with those tensions a bit, but Guntram still couldn't afford to let him return to Marseille and possibly continue working with Gundervold. Since Gundervold was coming from the south, the lands he could most easily seize for himself were mostly Guntram's. And if successful, Guntram would have an unfriendly kingdom, both to the north and to the south of him, catching the old king in a pincer. So he kept Theodore locked away, and began to work on removing Gundervold's supporters one by one. The appearance of another Merovingian claimant was as much an opportunity to dozens of nobles and courtiers as it was a threat to the existing kings. 
done something to offend your king? Well, there's a new king who doesn't care about your existing reputation. A fresh start and the opportunity to gain riches or power at the expense of your rivals. If Gundervold was successful in establishing himself, he would no doubt be generous to those who had backed him from the beginning. But of course, landless and mostly powerless sycophants does not a kingdom make. To have a chance, Gundervold would need powerful backers. King Guntram, knowing this, moved quickly to cut them off. With Bishop Theodore in custody, and Guntram Boso lurking around, Gundervold obviously didn't feel safe and retreated, for the time being, to a nearby island in the Mediterranean. This left the men who had backed him exposed to King Guntram's retributions. And top of the list was Mumulus. Mumulus was not only a great general, a dangerous thing to let any enemy have, but also controlled Avignon, a not insignificant city, and a significant fortress, as we're about to see. His fame was also no doubt a factor. Really, if there was anyone you would want on your side when trying to carve out a kingdom for yourself in Gaul, it was probably Mumulus. Guntramboso had seized what property of Gundervold he could get his hands on in Marseille, apparently a significant hoard of silver, gold, and other precious objects. This was probably part of the funding Gundervold had received from the Romans, and losing it was a harsh early blow for his rebellion. Guntramboso took his share back to Clermont-Ferrand for safekeeping. Then, an interesting series of events occurs. Guntramboso took a trip to Austrasia to see King Childebert. We don't know for sure what happened during this trip, but it does make clear that Guntramboso was still at least nominally aligned with the Austrasian court. The trip was probably to shore up his support in the court and apologise for taking action against Theodore, who had been reinstalled by this very court only a few years before. But he was playing a dangerous game, and the more he annoyed the court, the less freedom they would give him. And they already didn't like him very much. This is important context for the next occurrence, which seems to come out of nowhere. Upon returning to Clermont-Ferrand, Guntramboso was suddenly seized by agents of King Guntram. He was dragged before the king and a fascinating conversation is related to us by Gregory. Quote, It was your invitation which brought Gundervold to Gaul, said King Guntram. And it was to arrange this that you went to Constantinople a few years ago. End quote. Guntram Boso had apparently been part of a diplomatic mission between the court of Childebert and that of the Romans. These missions were common at the time, Guntramboso responded, quote, It was your leader, Mamulus, who received Gundervold and gave him hospitality in Avignon. Let me go and fetch Mamulus and bring him to your court. This will clear me of the charges leveled against me. End quote. 
So, it appears the hoped-for protection from the court of Childebert was basically non-existent. The Austrasian court knew Guntramboso was trying to play both sides, to see where he could ingratiate himself the best. So, they seemingly raised no objection to his arrest by King Guntram. But King Guntram seems to have interpreted Guntramboso's actions against Bishop Theodore as either a misdirect, or a removal of one of Guntramboso's rivals. King Guntram answered Guntramboso's plea, quote, You shall not go until you have first paid the penalty for the wrongs which you have done, end quote. Now, what would the punishment for treason have been? Well, luckily, Gregory is here to turn subtext into text for us. Quote, Guntram Boso realised that his life was threatened. End quote. Thanks, Gregory. I never would have figured that out on my own. Anyway, Guntram Boso knew that he was in serious danger. He needed to get out so that he could seize Mumulus and use the general as a stooge to take some of the heat off of himself. But how to get King Guntram to trust him? Well, luckily, Guntram Boso was a good, honest, family man, who knew exactly where his priorities should lie. Quote, Here is my son, he said. Take him, and let him be a surety for this promise which I make to you, my lord and king. If I do not bring Mumulus to you, I shall lose my young son. End quote. How heroic. Really think about what Guntram Boso just promised King Guntram. He said, that the king should let him go so that he could march to Avignon, which Mamelus, the greatest and most famous general in Gaul, had spent months fortifying, so that he could try and seize the general and take him back to King Guntram's court. And if he failed, King Guntram should kill his firstborn son. A solid plan. Let's see how it goes for him. The confrontation between Mamelus and Guntram Boso would be the height of slapstick comedy, if not for all of the dead men and the young boy's life in danger. Guntramboso first returned to Clermont-Ferrand and raised himself an army. He then marched to Avignon. Arriving on the other side of the river Hron, he conveniently found a bunch of boats on the banks of the river. What luck! He and his men piled into these boats, and set off across the water towards the city. But, as it turns out, Mamulus had left those boats there on purpose, because he and his men had sabotaged all of them. Who would have seen that coming? So, halfway across the river, the boats started to fall apart and take on water. Quickly, the entire army started to panic. Some managed to swim to shore, some seized planks of the disintegrating boats and floated their way across. Some drowned horribly in the thrashing mass of limbs. Guntramboso, luckily, made it across in one piece. Seemingly undeterred by this setback, he pulled together his remaining men and approached the city. Mumulus shouted out to Guntramboso that if he came in good faith, he should approach the city and Mumulus would come out and talk. As he approached, he saw Mumulus standing under the city walls. He called out, 
asking for permission to come closer so that they could discuss their matters in private. Mumulus agreed, telling him to approach and that he had nothing to fear. Guntramboso stepped forward and immediately fell face first into a deep channel filled with fast-flowing river water that Mumulus had constructed as a booby trap. He had actually dug these traps all around the side of his city that wasn't already protected by the river. Guntramboso nearly died in the river once again, only saved by one of his men who stuck a lance into the water and fished the count out of the trap like a cat from a tree. I can just imagine Mumulus standing there, laughing his ass off. As it turns out, Guntramboso had severely underestimated his enemy. Who would have guessed? Finally, at his wit's end, Guntramboso pulled his men back and simply laid siege to the city. Reinforced by men that had been sent by King Guntram, he might not have been able to take the well-defended city by force, but he did stand a decent chance of starving the garrison into submission. Unfortunately for Guntramboso, he had also completely underestimated Marmalus's political clout and Childebert's interest in the southern lands that he had claimed. An Austrasian army appeared, commanded by Gundolf. If you remember back to episode 32, Gundolf had already commanded another army from Childebert that had reinstalled Theodore in Marseille. He was also, fun fact, Gregory's great-uncle, because every fifth or so person in our story has to be related to Gregory in some kind of way. Anyway, just like he had with Theodore, Gundolf saved Mumulus, forcing Guntramboso to lift the siege and retreat. Gundolf then took Mumulus north, no doubt offering him protection in the court of Childebert. But Mumulus was seemingly unwilling to give up his solid power base and returned to Avignon. Now, what was Gundevold doing this whole time, I hear you ask? Well, not much. He seems content to wait outside of Gaul and see how this all plays out. A very conservative strategy, and one we might dismiss as cowardly. But we might be judging too hastily, because things in Gaul were coming to a head. King Guntram was vulnerable. He had rebellious nobles holding major cities, a potential rival sitting off the coast waiting for an opportunity and his men had just suffered a humiliating defeat at the hands of Gundolf and Mumulus. In this context, Chilperic received a large embassy from the court of Childebert, led again by Bishop Egidius of Hrem. They claimed that due to King Guntram's illegal seizure of Childebert's part of Marseille, the young king now could no longer keep the peace with the king in Burgundy. They also reaffirmed their support for the alliance between Chilperic and Childebert. Chilperic responded, quote, My brother is clearly guilty of many crimes. If my adopted son Childebert will look into the sequence of events, he will soon discover that his father Sigebert was killed with Guntram's connivance. End quote. Woof. 
It is a sign of just how low Guntram's prospects were seen as being that Chilperic felt comfortable openly making such an accusation. Bishop Egidius responded, quote, If you will now join forces with your nephew and he with you, and if the two of you will march together against him, Guntram will soon be punished for what he has done. End quote. This is it. The civil war that has been on the back burner for years due to the stalemate between the kings is about to come to boil. Guntram's vulnerability and diplomatic isolation has left Chilperic with a perfect opportunity to remove his brother once and for all. It was finally time for the showdown that had been so long in the making. Are you ready for the Franks to briefly rekindle some of that old fire? Chilperic ordered his dukes to begin attacking Guntram's lands in central Gaul, as he was amassing a massive army in Paris. Dukes Desiderius, Berolf, and Bladist all raised armies and converged on the city of Bourges, starting a brutal ravaging of the countryside. In response, the men of Bourges raised their own army and took to the field to face the dukes. Massing their troops, the dukes received a message from Chilperic, who was now on the move and cutting a path of destruction south. He had ordered them to seize Bourges. Seeing no other option, the dukes prepared for a battle. The men of Bourges had managed to put together an army of 15,000, if you believe Gregory. This was an impressively large force for the time, and must be a reflection of the wealth of the surrounding area. Facing off against the dukes, the men were fighting for their homes and livelihoods. It is perhaps because of this determination that the slaughter was so immense. Usually armies, especially the armies of this period, turned and ran quickly, once things seemed to not be going their way. This was actually one of the most important uses for cavalry, as the horsemen could harry the fleeing enemy and kill enough and instill enough fear that the army had little chance of reforming. This usually resulted in fairly light casualties in the grand scheme of things. This battle was not one of these, however. At the end of the day, 7,000 men lay dead on the battlefield, a staggering number when we consider many more would likely have been injured in a time before modern medicine. The dukes likely expected the men of Bourges to run once things weren't going their way, but the large casualties likely indicate that they fought on long after their cause was doomed, determined to save their families. But it was not to be. After recovering, the army under the dukes moved into Bourges, seizing the city and beginning a sack of the area. I'll let Gregory describe the rest. Quote, the devastation there was greater than anything described in ancient times. Not a house remained standing, not a vineyard, not an orchard. Everything was razed to the ground and utterly ruined. They stole the communion vessels from the churches, 
and set fire to the churches themselves. End quote. Amidst the chaos in his realm, King Guntram raised his own army. This was it for his rule. He knew he had to take to the field personally to preserve the last shred of his legitimacy as a Merovingian king. He could take his men west and try to defeat the army of the dukes, or he could take them north and stop the advancing Chilperic. In a normal situation, moving west to defeat the second force, while allowing Chilperic to waste men and resources taking defended city after defended city, might have been a sound move. But given the precarious political position he was in, Guntram really only had one choice. We don't know too much about the battle between Guntram and Chilperic. Neither were accomplished warriors, though Chilperic certainly had more recent experience commanding an army. Guntram, possibly knowing he was on the back foot, seems to have taken a big risk. Gregory notes that as night was falling, a time when most armies facing each other would start readying camp, Guntram attacked. A night attack is always a massive risk, as it is nigh on impossible to communicate effectively or keep your men in line and in good order. You basically have to hope that the element of surprise outweighs the confusion from your own troops. Luckily for Guntram, Chilperic seems to have been taken completely by surprise, and when the dust had settled and morning came, the outcome was clear. Guntram had crippled the army of Chilperic, effectively removing it as a threat, placing his half-brother at his mercy, and saving his kingdom. This really had been it for Guntram. If he had lost, Chilperic would have become the dominant power in Gaul, and been able to do whatever he wanted. Gundervold would have faced a much tougher road, and Childebert would have been at Chilperic's mercy. Speaking of Childebert, though, where was the young king? Hadn't his diplomats started this whole campaign? Well, not only was the young king not there at the battle, neither were his men. As Chilperic had marched south, he had received a reassuring stream of messages that Childebert's men were on their way, but the promised support never materialised. Remember, Childebert was in the underdog position in Merovingian politics. Both of his uncles were more powerful than he was. Heck, he didn't even have full control of his own court. So with that in mind, we can see the kind of games Childebert had been playing. No doubt, with his mother's advice and support, the young king had been slowly turning everyone against each other. While Chilperic and Guntram had been focused on one another, he had been sneaking his men into their realms, causing chaos and weakening the position of the senior kings. When Guntram had been weakened sufficiently, largely thanks to the efforts of pro-Childebert nobles and Gundervold, Childebert had goaded Chilperic into attacking Guntram directly, but had withdrawn his promised support and allowed Chilperic to be humiliated. Guntram had survived, if only barely, while the powerful Chilperic had been taken down a few notches, 
Now that's what I call impressive politicking. But things were not all fine and dandy for the young king. After remaining encamped during the battle, Childebert then ordered his men to break camp and move south by night. Why? Well, we can't be 100% sure. He might have wanted to take the exhausted kings by surprise. What he then planned to do is unclear as well, but with a fresh army, he would have been in a strong position to threaten the other two kings and impose himself upon the peace negotiations. But this was not to be. His men began to riot at the order. They seem to have hated Bishop Egedius and the king's other pro-Chilperic advisers, shouting out that they were betraying the kingdom. Quote, Down with those who are handing his cities over to an enemy power. Down with those who are selling Childebert's subjects into slavery. End quote. What exactly they were referring to is not recorded. But given how Egedius had led the negotiations with Chilperic, and the older king had seized Sigebert's, now Childebert's, lands after the old king's death, the target seems clear. It seems that the pro-Chilperic nobles in the court had forgotten the first rule of history, always keep your army happy. When morning came, the riots intensified as the troops seized their weapons and rushed the king's tent, apparently hoping to seize the nobles who they thought were controlling the king and to free the king from their clutches. Egedius was forced to flee to Chrem on horseback, pursued by angry soldiers. Some of his companions fell behind, being taken and killed by the mob. But Egedius managed to reach Chrem, where he immediately closed the gates and fortified himself. Now, as you may have noticed, this episode, which I had promised was meant to be about Gundervold, didn't actually contain a lot of Gundervold in it. I must apologise. I had hoped to cover the rebellion of Gundervold and wrap up his saga before returning to the rest of Frankish politics. But, alas, as I started writing this episode, I realised my hubris. Too much happens that is too important to the story of Gundervold, and I couldn't simply separate it all out. So, we're going to have a couple of episodes before we return to the story of Gundervold. When we get to the major events that occurred in these years, you'll understand why I had to include them, but I promise we'll return to Gundervold's tale before too long. For next week, however, we'll take a look at the peaceful settlement between the kings, who somehow ended this week all on the back foot, and we'll measure the calm before the next storm. See you then. <laughs>